0: The Zone Coverage Podcast Network.
1: This podcast is presented in front of a live Astadio audience. Hey, hey, it's Midwest Swing, part of the Zone Coverage Podcast Network. You can find Midwest Swing on Twitter at Midwest Swing Pod. And Zone Coverage at Zone Coverage, yeah, man, I'm your host, Brandon Warren. You can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore Warren. Working the dials and pushing the knobs across the room is Justin, the producer, at I am Justin Bailey on Twitter. And across
2: the table from me is co-founder of Zone Coverage at schreier 3 What's up? I'm here. I'm going from the uh, that first game against the Yankees, which was, was kind of wild. Bomb central. And before we get to today's guest... Thank you so much for your
1: reviews on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Libsyn, the funky purple little icon on your iPhone, whatever you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> give us five stars on there if you like the show. If you don't, hit us up and let us know what we can change. Slide into those DMs. But again, those... Those reviews are very big for us in terms of moving up the charts to make us look a little more legitimate than we are. Actually, no, hopefully we look as legit as we are, but just keep (laughs) giving us those reviews. Uh, Thank you so much. We can't do the show without you, so thank you for your support. Now, on to today's guest. He is a recurring guest or a returning guest. You can find his work both on Baseball Prospectus and on the – excuse me, the – what's the name of your newsletter again? This is Matt Trueblood, M.A. Trueblood is – I I keep thinking spinning yarn, but I know that's a rubbing mud. That's on baseball prospectus. The name of your uh, newsletter is what?
3: Penning bull.
1: Penning bull. That's right. That's right. So make sure to check that out. I believe it's what? eleven, eleven per year.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, right now a decent chunk of that for each new subscription is going toward a couple of different charities. So you can find out more at penningbull.com or just by following me on Twitter.
1: Highly recommend getting that in your inbox, right up there with Joe Sheehan and some of the best baseball content. You can get delivered right to your email. You don't even have to go out and seek it. So it's great stuff. Well, Matt, you've obviously been out at Target Field a couple times while we've been out there. You were taking in the Mets and talking to Todd Frazier. What else has been keeping you busy? I understand you work at home now.
3: Yeah. So, you know keeping up with the day job keeping up with kids and uh there's no shortage of things to talk about different topics all around the league right now obviously getting close to the trade deadline so just been trying to keep my head above the baseball water
1: yeah i can totally relate to that and we'll get to your cubs here in a little bit some national trade deadline speculation that sort of thing but we got to talk about the Twins a little bit. Tom obviously out at Target Field last night, 8-6 win for the Twins. Mm-hmm. Martin Perez gets roughed up a little bit, but the Twins do the deed to CC Sabathia, who's been facing the Twins since like, I don't know, 2000, oh, I know. 2001. Former like Brewer. Yeah, Former, uh, we got to give Justin a little bit of a yeah for that. But um, what was the mood like in the stadium? I know Lewis Thorpe came in and <laughs> yeah. threw some swords, and that was pretty cool. But uh, boy, I tell you. I think that when Tyler Duffy came in, Twitter especially was thinking that they were going to give up the lead.
2: Yeah, Twitter and, uh, you know, in general, Twins fans are not like the most confident people right now. Mm -hmm. Indians creeping up behind them. You know, even just talking to a couple of players. And I think this is worth saying. The relievers actually, and I assume the starters as well, want people to cheer through the at-bat. And I never thought about this, but they're like, you should treat it like, you know, a, a player at the foul line mm-hmm. that you're kind of distracting the hitter or something by creating noise. waving noodles and stuff. Yeah. I don't know if we're getting out the noodles or whatever, but kind of the how large target field can get is an advantage as a reliever. Um, and they're picking up um, and it's not even really a criticism as much as they're just observing what we all see that. People here aren't fully ready to believe in the, in the Minnesota Twins, probably because it's so new and because of the history with the Twins and the Vikings and the, the other sports teams in town or whatever. Um, but it was just throughout the whole game, it was kind of just a lot of tension. It, was, it could start with the two walks. Uh, Perez, he walked LeMahieu and Judge. Mm-hmm. Um, Perez, to my understanding, will locate his pitches and work on his uh, location at first then throw harder as the you know he seems to nimble a lot too yeah and it is concerning given that it seemed like he was kind of throwing more freely and mm-hmm. this is just kind of a basic observation but when he was pitching better he hasn't been terrible he kind of gives out about gives up about 4 runs in an outing and goes about 6 innings he's Kyle Gibson circa 3 years ago yeah and um it didn't look good set up the triple play arias yep. uh, remains one of the most exciting players, I think, on the Twins. Sure. And I think the fans pick up on that as well. Um, and then a big question was, they continue to say, these guys know that the, this is a bigger series than when they play the Royals, right? I mean, it's sure. look at all the camera crew and all the media and all the fans that turn up. And, I mean, Tom Schreier came out. What else, Tom what Schreier else do you need came to name out. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think... Uh, the stadium, I mean. <laughs> Brandon, Brandon has made... A, I don't know if we want to say the word on the podcast, but a rough joke about my wrists, I think, and then uh, yeah, that was last week. Yeah, this is it's tough being Tom Schreier. Uh, that's why I stay at the stadium and rarely come in the studio. Smart, but, uh, but either way, you know, it's a, uh, um, yeah, it, you know, it's they know it's a big series. Lewis Thorpe even said he's like, I know who I'm pitching to, you know, and he he looked pretty nervous in the beginning. But yeah, I think when when Duffy goes out there and Perez looked really good in the second inning, struggled against 10 pitches, third.
1: 3 strikeouts. Yep. Yeah,
2: and then but went right back to looking rough in the third and fourth inning. It it did look like a turning point in the game. That That's when the Yankees were going to pull ahead and win. Yep. Little Jekyll and Hyde. Matt, I want to know what you make of Twins fans being so skeptical of a team
1: that last check I think is 23 games over 500. Are they afraid to love and lose or are they just being quintessential Minnesota fans that are waiting for the other shoe to drop? <laughs>
3: Maybe just quintessential fans in general. Yeah, that's um, The Twins sort of, you know, it, it's the first time in quite a while that this team has been good. And I think Twins fans are a bit out of practice in what it means to follow a good team.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I've been harkening back as as this team has gone through the season almost without a, a sustained period of adversity. Now, obviously, they were playing around 500 ball for a while and dealing with a lot of injuries but they didn't have a prolonged losing streak. And until very recently, they weren't really threatened in the division. That took me back to the 2016 Cubs, whom I was following very closely. And uh, it was their second year of being good. So things were just a little bit different. Maybe the expectations coming into the season were higher than what this Twins team is dealing with. But they burst out of the gate, just like this team did, opened up a huge early lead, And then they hit a massive funk just before the All-Star break in their case where they lost uh, 15 out of 20. And they still held the lead. They were still in first place by about this margin, you know, three, four, five games, depending on the day. But Cub fandom just sort of went up during that period. And it just, it's a good reminder that that'll happen with just about any fan base. But to remember that teams like the 2016 Cubs, the 2017 Astros had a similar period late, late in that season to remember that even teams of that quality are going to have long periods where they're just not fully themselves. If you remember that and you sort of keep it in the back of your mind as you watch them go through what's been an up and down, but not altogether bad period over the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the thing that Twins fans are still trying to remember how to do because it's been so long since they were good, but it's a, it's an extraordinary team and they're going to keep plugging. I think we're going to see them hit their stride again pretty soon here.
1: Yeah. And as I sit here right now, and I suspect you might feel the same way, this is a team that can win the world series. I mean, I'm not saying they're going to, there's never really a prohibitive favorite in the sense that, you know, over 50% because you've got the field to play against But if you were to ask me right now if this team has a chance to win the World Series, I'd unequivocally say yes. Would you be in the same boat?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Any team that figures to make the playoffs has a legitimate chance to win the World Series. Now, we know better than we thought even five, six years ago where we would all sort of chorus as October began. The playoffs are a crapshoot. Variance swamps everything. Any team that gets here can win it. It's not quite like that. But the Twins are very likely to win their division and go into the playoffs in a strong position in that sense. I think with their soft schedule down the stretch, there's a good chance they're going to have home field advantage, at least in the division series, maybe in the championship series. And then what it comes down to is, are they going to get a little help here at the trade deadline? Are they going to, when October comes, be fully healthy, which we haven't seen them be in a month or so now between Byron Buxton and CJ Krohn. Max Kepler and Eddie Rosario playing banged up mm-hmm. if they both have a reinforced pitching staff and a relatively healthy positional core when the playoffs open there's still a real good chance that they're the American League favorite that I'm writing out playoff predictions on the eve of the postseason and saying it's going to be a cold world series.
1: <laughs> well, that's nothing to sneeze at, but Tom's going to give it oh, a go. give damn. it a go
2: anyway. But Tom, <laughs> uh, where, where do you stand on this? Well, uh, yeah, I'm recovering from my sneeze, which was massive and nearly blew out everyone's ears. Um, <laughs> I I think you're right. Any team that gets in the playoffs has a chance. I think there's also um, got to give Cleveland credit. They they looked at a soft spot in their schedule and and have won just about any you know game that they've. Face the the Royals or Toronto I think they were or like Detroit, sixteen and two or something over and, that stretch. And I mean, they lost the one zero game. I I think it's worth noting, and I actually wrote about this when I when I went out to Kansas City and covered that series. The Royals have played the Twins tough. I they're a weird bad team that like if you kind of don't pay attention to them, I think they can beat you. Um, they're a weird bad team, and they're a bad weird team. Yeah, like. I think there's a slight difference, but I think they check both of those boxes. It's it's a good way to build a a bad team, as in like it's still worth paying to watch the Royals play if you're a fan of the Royals. Well, because Billy Hamilton gets on base, he can
1: run, and they yeah, Whit Merrifield and a couple know. of the guys can play a little defense, and yeah, Whit Merrifield does pretty much everything well, and so yeah. it's not like watching the Twins from six years ago where just like, you just know Woof. it was the Joe Mauer post concussion where he didn't really catch his his, his yeah. stride yet and that sort
2: of thing. I mean. There's nothing it. around them, so I, you know, you're going to the park to watch, like Dozier, for example. But yeah, um, yeah. In the Twins, I think in some ways this, and this is what I wrote about. They won't count this as a measuring stick. They know it's a big series, but they try to ignore who they're facing and just go out and do what they normally do, which they kind of did in this game. They out hit a good offensive team, really great but, offensive team. But um, it's probably the right mentality. But I think it's it's intellectually dishonest to say. Yeah, the Twins should measure themselves against Cleveland, that still is the reigning champs in the AL. They should measure themselves against Oakland, that's probably the second wild-card team and is made up of... of Mostly former Twins. Yeah, (laughs) right, and not necessarily big-name players, but they're kind of like the Twins as in they're they're kind of a sum of their parts. It kind of works out with uh, how the roster is constructed. And the Yankees, because... They, it's crazy to me that you know Minnesota actually won the series against the season series against the Astros
1: four out of seven, I think.
2: Yeah, but we're blown out in the three games they lost. They looked good against the race but suffered a really bad loss to Tampa. Again, maybe a wild card team, and, and you know with with Oakland, um, you know it made, it, o- Oakland played them, played them tough. And and the biggest factor here, I believe, is. Um, I think Rodgers is fine. I know he just blew his save. He, he'll be good. I think that Rosario, as long as he's healthy, is a star player. But Byron Buxton, if he's not in the lineup, it makes a huge difference because he's pivot. a star. It's basically
1: the pivot point for this team. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, one contention I have, and I'm going to write about this tonight, is bullpen is going to be a really weird marketplace, this trade deadline, because... When you look at the landscape of uh, bullpens on the whole, I think I think the league average ERA for a bullpen is like 4.50, the Twins are like 4.36. So you think of all the angst that there's been about bullpens and then somehow the Twins are magically a top half bullpen. Last night I looked on fan graphs. they were 4th in win probability added, which I mean, every every bullpen stat has its pros and cons. But they've had some guys who've pitched really well in high leverage spots. Taylor Rogers comes to mind. I just think there's going to be, one, a lot of teams involved that maybe don't want to get out of it yet. For instance, San Francisco, who very low chance of making the postseason. I think they're
2: going to go for it, though. But
1: two games out, they've got a Bumgarner situation, a bochi situation where those two guys are possibly on their way out. But they've got all these bullpen guys. They've had one of the decent bullpens. If they don't trade any of those guys, all of a sudden the bullpen market dries up even more. And again, every team is going to be looking for one or two bullpen guys. The Dodgers need bullpen guys. The Nationals need bullpen guys. Pretty much every team could use one or two bullpen guys. I think that the bullpen market is going to come down, but I still think it's going to be kind of crazy. Would you, would you agree with that, Matt?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's true every, every July, right? Uh, sure. When teams make mistakes, it tends to be, especially acting as buyers, it tends to be overpaying for rental relievers. Um, now, there's a reason they're doing that. It's because a reliever... Maybe more than anywhere else on your roster, you add a reliever and if he's your second best guy, it still pushes the worst guy in that unit, which is a big part of your roster mm-hmm. right. out of the picture. Um, and the twins have such flexibility in terms of guys yeah. who have options, uh, guys that are already sort of riding a carousel, but adding one solid relief person in there, mm-hmm. uh, you know you can have one more fixture and still have plenty of flexibility in sort of the middle uh, relief core. So they're in a good position to leverage a bullpen addition, but yeah, there's going to be a race. I mean, we're eight days out, and there really hasn't been a significant reliever moved yet, unless you're counting Anthony Swarzak. So <laughs> please
2: let's count Anthony you know, Swarzak.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so you know we're still in this, still sort of finding out what what the picture is going to look like. It's going to be expensive, and it's going to be a mad dash when sort of the season does open up because the window is very short and teams can't wait and see what happens in August. Um, But I also think that's why you have guys like Derek Falvey and Thad Levine and why so many teams have multiple of these guys. You can have more than one phone line working at once and you can have multiple executives who sort of check each other. If one is uh, on the precipice of making a deal that maybe they could price out better, or maybe it's because the, you know, the top evaluator, is in love with a particular guy, the other one can sort of balance them out. So I do think they're going to have something to sort of temper that danger, but it's going to be a wild market. And the twins, I think, are pretty committed to making some sort of move within it. And so, you know, it, what happens there is impossible to predict.
1: Yeah, I think creativity is going to be their best characteristic. If it's going and getting like a Michael Gibbons who's having a little bit of a down year, but has another year of control or. Ian Kennedy, whose contract situation maybe isn't that exciting, but he's having a great year. Shane Green's got another year of control. I mean, each of those guys are going to have their price, and it might be more than Twins fans are comfortable giving up prospect-wise. But I just I don't see them shopping at the Will Smith, Felipe Vasquez, Ken Giles tier. I think you build the bridge to Taylor Rogers, you fortify the the fortress around him, rather than trying to find another Taylor Rogers caliber reliever or two to push him down the down the line and have him working as a setup guy. First of all, he's been so good that you can get him, use him for six outs, you can use him in big spots, which Rocco has done. But I just think if you get if you get yourself in a box where you're like, well, we got to have someone better than Taylor Rogers or or two guys as good as that, then you start checking off boxes and and trading prospects that maybe you're not comfortable trading for guys who could just as easily get hurt or have a, a two month slump, which for a reliever kind of ruins the season. I just think they're, they're going to be creative. I think they're going to go off the radar and maybe acquire someone we're not thinking about. I mean, is it Sam Dyson? Is it Trevor Gott? Is it someone that twins fans have no idea who it is? I think that's very possible.
3: I've got a name too. This is one I've just started sort of pondering today. How about Hansel Robles with the angels? Why not? Um, You know, a pickup from who was, available on waivers just over a year ago but he is now consistently hitting 98 with the fastball he's the angels have sort of gotten their hooks into him and he's changed up his pitch mix he's, how often he's there Liam Hendricks.
1: he's there Liam Hendricks
3: yeah and I think it's for the twins a Robles they have some team control on him beyond this year if they wanted to go get him B, this is a front office that they've worked well with. Uh, the Angels and Twins have gone back and forth pretty frequently. Uh, in fact, when they just did this round of DFA's, was it Alberto Mejia who landed yep. in Anaheim?
1: But you've got the Alex, uh, the Alex Meyer deal with Santiago and Ricky Nolasco, and yeah, they, they've, done some, they've done some deals recently.
3: Right, and I think that one predates Salvi and Levine, but maybe I'm misremembering I think, I think the right. timeline. But when you're looking to make a deal in a compressed time frame, it helps to find a front office you're familiar with and one that values players in a similar way to you. And that is true of the angels and twins. And then the last thing is that Robles gives them a chance to successfully do what they tried and failed to do before the season, which was to add a guy and what the guy they added over the winter was Blake Parker, where they could say, we know Taylor Rogers is our relief ace, mm-hmm. but we're going to add Parker and make him our nominal closer to give Rogers some flexibility and allow Baldelli to comfortably remove Rogers from a game and not feel like, okay, once he's in, I have to push him for whatever it might be, whether it's three or eight outs to get to the end of the game. He wouldn't have to do that if Parker had worked out the way that they had hoped he would, and they could take another shot on a relatively You know, low level guy, but still someone who's going to be competent and has experience in that role and can sort of fit in behind, uh, below Rodgers on the depth chart, but sort of behind him in the bullpen hierarchy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Rocco Rocco made a good point about that the other night. If you bring in Rodgers in the eighth for one or two outs and you have a one run lead and then you score in the bottom half and the lead becomes three. But you go back to Rogers because he's already hot, and also because if you go to another guy, that guy gives up two runs. You can't go back to Rogers, and so if you would have used Rogers in that situation already, again, you've already got him hot. You've got him in the game as is. What's stretching him three more outs?
2: So he, he's also efficient. He throws yeah, as many pitches I mean, in two innings as some people do in one. Yeah, he's like thirty
1: yeah. something or forty something in pitches thrown. I mean, I, I posted all the numbers on Twitter the other night when people were freaking out. He has not been overworked. It's just sometimes things happen.
0: Yeah,
3: and it is valuable that he's extremely efficient. And Baldelli is right in the logic that he laid out there. At the same time, no matter how efficient you are, a certain level of usage does pile up and diminish your effectiveness. It's not that it's putting him at a massive risk of injury or that he's just going to collapse. But when you look at the exact situation you just described, the one that played out Thursday night after Eddie Rosario's big pinch hit homer, Mm And Rogers was fine finishing out that game. I don't think it overexerted him or anything, but I think we have to acknowledge the possibility that that left him just a little bit gassed. And that's why he blew a lead later that weekend against the eight.
1: Certainly possible.
3: So, you know, those tiny things can add up and that's why every bit of relief, relief depth you can add in whatever form too. you know, they could go out and add a starting pitcher and Martin Perez would look pretty good sliding into relief. I know it's not his preference. I know that he came here to get a chance to start, and he's gotten one. Uh, but if they were to go and add a starter and just slide Perez into the relief role that they sort of have standing open right now for a lefty who is not being used as the relief ace like Rogers, that can work too. But every bit of depth that you add has a trickle-up effect in terms of making – the guys who are already in your bullpen and whom you value most highly a little less, uh, hard worked
2: just along those lines. What do you guys think of? We've seen Cole Stewart come up and I, I, you know, looked all right in relief. Um, and you know, Lewis Thorpe looked great. They'll give you some length too. Are those two guys, listen, it doesn't mean you shouldn't go get one or two relievers, you know, the trade deadline still break glass in case of emergency guys. I mean, um, are they viable arms? I guess that's what I'm asking. Mm, Do they give you depth in the bullpen?
1: I think you'd rather break them in as long uh, guys who give you length and not really have to rely on them late in games like they did with Thorpe last night. So to me, it's not going to keep you from making any moves. I mean, it's a nice story that Thorpe did what he did. I mean, could they stay up? I guess that's what I'm asking. I, don't, I just, I don't know. I don't think so. Matt?
3: I think they're going to stay on the Rochester shuttle yeah. throughout August. Um, and that's to me, they're two different cases too. Stewart. We've seen what he can do. We know that there's velocity, but there's not necessarily real raw stuff that Mm -hmm. capital S stuff, missing bats in the strike zone. It's not there for Cole Stewart. That doesn't mean he can't be effective in any role for any team, but I don't think he's going to emerge as an important piece of the twins at any point in the foreseeable future. Lewis Thorpe, that's not necessarily true. Um, So you could see him shuttling back and forth throughout the rest of July and through August. But when the Rochester team shuts down for the year, he's going to be up there in the September bullpen. And then could he be on a playoff roster? Well, I think it probably you hope that it still takes an injury or him really surprising you down the stretch, but the stuff is already there. And if he's a few weeks of, being clay in West Johnson's hands, while there's not a ton else that Johnson needs to be prioritizing, mm-hmm. maybe when you get to October, you do feel like he's the guy who can be your mid-innings bridge.
1: Now, I have to ask you, John Bonus did a poll last night on Twitter, friend of the show, John Bonus, and it was, if the Mets call you up and say they'll take Royce Lewis or Luis rise straight up for Noah Syndergaard or the alternative is he goes to the Astros, would you do either of those, or who would you? which one would you do first? Um, I feel like that was a social experiment on seeing how much people have allowed this stretch of Luis Arise to go to their head. Would you uh, tend feature, to agree with that? Future Hall of Famer, Luis Arise, yeah. please. <sighs> I hope, yeah, I hope I, that's uh, what that was, because okay. otherwise I was confused.
3: Yeah, I, John explained it on their... Patreon-only podcast today, That the German word he used in there, which I'm not going to try to reproduce here because uh, <laughs> I don't speak German, but it really basically means thought experiment. Okay. Uh, so that's all he was doing was checking people's pulses on eyes. And obviously, uh, he has really taken, sort of captured the imagination of, of the fan base. He's taken the place that people had sort of reserved in their hearts for Williams Astadio because AstaDio's sort of faded into the background now. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and and you and I talked briefly on Twitter then about Arias too and you pointed out the projections for the rest of the year, which basically show him being what his minor league profile would have suggested he is. A guy with maybe a plus hit tool, decent strike, you know, command of the strike zone, no meaningful power. Um And for a guy who can't play shortstop, can sort of fit in at other positions, but isn't going to be a gold glover at any of them, that's not enormously valuable, uh, certainly relative to what the ceiling on Royce Lewis is. Mm -hmm. And Lewis is hitting a lot better of late in the minors, so you probably just need to remove that from the calculus. Like, obviously, Royce Lewis is higher on teams prep list than Luis Arias, including the Twinses. Um, But I think Arias is legitimate in certain ways too and we have to remember that there are a lot of you know there are plenty of recent examples just on the twins uh, Max Kepler, Mitch Garver, Jorge Polanco of guys who came up through the minors and the one thing sort of missing from their profile was standout power that they got here and over the last year or two they've added that uh, and that element has just been fitted into the puzzle by the coaching staff they have on hand, the analytics team, whatever the case might be um, so there's a little bit of that going on with rise If you sort baseball Savant's leaderboard for all the players who have at least 100 batted balls this year mm-hmm. and sort by the highest percentage of those batted balls that have been in uh, StatCast's launch angle sweet spot from low-line drives to true fly balls without being pop-ups, Luis Arise is first. He's first. Wow. So this is a guy who... Can consistently barrel up the baseball, takes phenomenal at bats. Uh, he's a pro and he belongs in the lineup as often as they can get him there, probably more often than Johnson Stoke does. Uh, he's not a fluke. Um, at the same time, he's not, there's not a superstar ceiling here because he just doesn't consistently hit the ball all that hard and he's not a standout defender anywhere on the diamond.
1: Do you you think that the 4.15 slugging percentage that, uh, I can't remember if it was the bat or steamer, I mean, is that more realistic, or do you think there's more than that in there?
3: I think there's more, just because I think those projections tend to be done a little bit more in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And they'll, of course, take into account, by looking at all of the numbers that the league has produced over the previous few years, what the general run environment is. Right. But I don't think that the bat or steamer or zips necessarily sees the juice ball in all its glory when it's projecting um, even right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that it properly accounts for what he's shown since he came up in terms of that ability to keep the ball off the ground and in the perfect band to create some power, Um, as well as just the fact that the Twins and other teams, it's not unique to Minnesota. Have a knack now for adding power to players who have demonstrated the other essential skills at the plate, um, sort of late in their development curves. So I think there's a much higher ceiling on the power than that. But when I say much higher, I don't mean that he's going to go out and slug for eighty either. It, yeah. You know, it, it depends on what his batting average is. But I think he can scratch out maybe that one fifty-ish isolated power just because mm-hmm. that's league average and a little bit minus. And that's where I think Arias has arrived developmentally.
1: How how do teams, do you think, how are they, they going to view offense both in this marketplace and in the offseason? You know, we've seen screwy marketplaces because teams have decided to not spend any money. Now the ball is juiced and now people don't know if they can trust offensive numbers. I mean, Derek Dietrich had one great month and then three months that have you know been two or three homers. How How is that going to alter the landscape for how hitting is exchanged, whether it's via free agency or trades? I mean, there's got to be a very low trust factor in this is legit or that MLB will act in good faith and not just change the baseball without telling anybody.
3: Right. And that second part is especially important because if you believe you can hold the baseball constant, then they can make assessments on a little firmer footing. Mm hmm. Variance is really high just across the league right now. I wrote about this in sort of a strange and abstract way, but I did tackle the subject at Baseball prospectus about a week ago, pointing out that Danny Santana, old friend, yes. is uh, just beating the snot out of the ball for the Rangers right now. Speaking of Luis Araya, but that, Yeah, kind of. Uh, part of that is that Santana has made a swing change. He is generating fly balls consistently. He's hitting them pretty hard. And so he's become a good hitter. But I think another part of it is you can sort of measure the tolerance of the game in terms of variance and strangeness um, based on how Danny Santana is doing. If he <laughs> is showing up, it means that the league is just wacky and it's hard to, hard to assess anything. Uh, that's why he's been out of the league the last couple of years when baseball was just a little more predictable. Uh, people were getting really comfortable with what stat numbers were telling them. They were good at evaluating players and developing players. And they felt like they had a handle on who was good and who was bad. And it stayed relatively stable. And that's just not the case right now. And I do think that's going to affect what anyone's willing to pay, how anyone feels in terms of, do we go for it right now? Do we sell off those team level decisions we were talking about earlier? Um, there's a bit of chaos that's just sort of infecting everything from the player market to front office decisions at a macro level as we approach the deadline.
1: So I want to ask you about the deadline from a macro sense. What storylines intrigue you the most as we go into the last week here?
3: Well, I think probably the Giants. I think they're, Mm -hmm. they're going to intrigue everyone just because, They have pieces with a lot of name recognition attached to them. What grabs me about it is they knew coming into the season that their plan was to use this year to continue and sort of accelerate a rebuild. They didn't expect to be this competitive. They have a new GM who thinks like, you know, the rest of the league basically thinks they had been a little bit less of a quantitative team. But that is what they are at this point. Um, and so they have to still be looking at themselves and saying our run differential is not great. Uh, the things that underlie our run differential, not great. There's no indicator that says we're going to continue to compete. Right. But at the same time, as you already mentioned, it's hard to say goodbye to Madison Baumgarner, It's hard to say goodbye to Bruce Bochy. Uh, and as long as you're nominally in the playoff race, does it sort of paralyze you? Um, go ahead.
2: I just want to pause on that point real quick because I feel like, in some ways, that was the Twins, or even maybe like I don't know the Phillies as well, but I felt like the Phillies kind of held on to the old, old guard that got them to the World Series probably too long. Is this actually a bad position for the team to be in, where like it's really hard to tell your fans, "Hey, this guy who brought you guys, you know, or these two guys who brought you guys, you know, World Series wins after that long drought." might not be the best people for baseball in today's game. That's why you're paid to make those decisions, to make the ones that are
1: going to drive fans away, but will bring them back in the future when Joey Bart is ready to ascend upon the Bay Area. But, yeah, I I don't envy the the task that Farhan Zaidi and his cohorts have in San Francisco right now.
3: Yeah, and I don't know that that we shouldn't call it a bad situation to be in because the Giants won three titles. Right. Um, but you do become a bit of a victim of your own success at a certain point. It's not true of quite every team. If you're like the Dodgers who have never leaned out over their skis in the slightest, you know, they've never really given up a top, top prospect. Each of the last two years, they've made big nominal additions in July, but they were rental players and that kept the price that they had to pay down. Um, you know, I think you do reach a point where it hurts to keep these guys because they just aren't the best possible way forward anymore, but to give them up would almost hurt more. Uh, and the giants aren't the only team that's sort of caught in that sort of middle ground at this point.
1: So let's, let's talk about teams that are kind of in that ether, Texas, the angels, San Diego, Colorado, of course the giants. Um, there's got to be a lot of variance in how you attack the deadline for each of those teams. I mean, the Angels, since you're paying Mike Trout and you have Upton, you have a pretty good middle of your order. Uh, you, you really don't have any pitching to speak of. You had the worst offseason this side of the Mets. Um, that's tough. But there's got to be a lot of variance in how each of those teams approaches the deadline despite being in the same virtual situation. Am I, Am I wrong?
3: No, you're not wrong, although I will say – just in the way we've come out of the all-star break. Some of that has sort of separated out. You look at, there was this enormous cluster of teams real close to 500 or in the American league, a bit above it heading into the break where you said it's hard for any of these clubs to sell. Who's going to emerge as buyers and who's going to sort of get stuck. And then some of them have just gone backward. The Rangers, the Rockies, the Padres, uh, The Mets really, you know, despite a little bit of a surge, they're they're way out of it. Mm -hmm. The Pirates and the Reds have come out of the break really badly. All of those teams should be in cell mode at this point. Being realistic that there are two different ways to fall out of a playoff race. One is to be left behind. The other is to be buried. And these teams are buried at this point. They may only be technically a few games out of a given playoff spot, but there are five or six teams between them and that spot. So they have to switch gears and think about the long term. But that means a different thing to each of those teams because the Reds have a lot of obvious trade pieces and they should already be on the phones trying to get something for those pieces. Um, But if you're the Rockies, well, you just committed to the Nolan Arenado plan uh, for the long term. Same with the Angels and Mike Trout.
0: Mm -hmm. You have
3: this small core of very good players that you just collected for not just the next two or three years, but the next six, seven, eight, 13, is it in Trout's case? (laughs) Uh, So now the challenge is, are there other guys here that maybe we still have under club control for not just this year, not just next year, one and a half, two and a half, three and a half years, but they're not realistically, a part of what we're trying to build can you move on from them and because they have that extra club control can you get enough value back to sort of reorganize your contention window around that contract that you signed this past winter
1: can you make any sense of how the reds approach this off off season and now into this season because the more we see i feel like the less we know
3: yeah, they're an interesting team. Um, I wrote about them a, a fair bit last year, just in July and then through the end of the season, observing that they seem to be a team sort of stuck in between. And then I thought they wisely chose a lane this winter. It's probably not the lane that I would have chosen, but they did choose one. And and the deals that they made were relatively smart ones. You know, getting Yasiel Puig Alex Wood and Matt Kemp and dumping the long-term expense of the Homer Bailey deal Mm -hmm. gave them some flexibility. In addition to upside on the immediate roster, Tanner Roark was a good move for a team that has had such hilarious and really atrocious rotation problems over the last few years. That had been what kneecapped them in their last couple of seasons of trying to compete. Well, they did successfully stabilize the rotation but it didn't really involve Alex Wood. If they'd had a healthy Wood, if Puig had performed the way they they hoped he would, you know, the way he has when he's been good in the past, they were sort of gambling on that, and mm. that roll of the dice came up snake eyes. Not that Puig's been awful, but all he's delivered is power right. in a year when everyone has power. He has like a 300 on base percentage. Well, it's kind of gone pear-shaped for them because – Some of the investments they made just didn't pan out the way they could reasonably have been expected to. So now it's a challenge to quickly switch gears. Um, But unlike some of those other teams that we just listed, they're not locked into so many things that they don't have the ability to do that as long as the front office and ownership, which is the big challenge in Cincinnati, getting ownership to be realistic about the fact that we're not going to win anything this year. Let's cash in and see what we can do over the next two or three.
2: Just just real quick, because Justin Bailey here, our producer, diehard Brewers fan. Just out of curiosity, how did you see the Reds coming into the season? Because they did make these interesting moves. However, they didn't seem like a threat probably.
4: Um, I think they looked interesting. Uh, I was pretty curious how the plea thing was going to work out. Um, there was some talk that the Brewers were interested in him Last year, I didn't think Pleague would take too well to playing in a small market like Milwaukee or Cincinnati, um, <laughs> but I, th- I think there was, there was a lot of potential going into the season. Um, I don't know if anyone expected them to make the jump to beat out Milwaukee or Chicago or uh, St. Louis to make a run at the division, um, but it, we took them a little bit more seriously than we had in years past, for sure. I think that's reasonable.
1: So, Matt, from where you sit right now, one week plus one day from the trade deadline, who stays and who goes? Your Bumgarners, your Strowmans, if you want to go as deep as Cindergaard, some of the bigger names, who stays and who goes?
3: Well, let's sort of organize it a little bit. When I look at the Mets, I think they should be really aggressive. I think this is the time to trade Noah Cindergaard, not because he's having the best season of his career or anything. He isn't. But because teams are willing to pay, in the case of a player like Syndergaard, for everything they see there, all the potential, all the stuff, and the performance track record, Mm -hmm. even if he's not currently, you know, rocking a two and a half ERA or anything, I think they should cash him in. If I were them, just given all the depth and the, the options they have and the way he's a little bit redundant in their plan, I would see what the... You know, market prices for a Michael Conforto on top of obviously shipping out Todd Frazier, Jason Vargas, Justin Wilson, whom we saw during their brief visit to target field, came up with a big scoreless inning. He's turned it around this year and only as this year and next of club control on a pretty cheap contract. They've got a lot of pieces they could cash in. I think there's almost no chance they will uh, because Brody Van Wagenen is new to the role trying to prove that this massive screw-up of a season that he's orchestrated is not just a massive screw-up. So I think you'll see them trade off Todd Frazier, Jason Vargas, maybe Zach Wheeler if he's healthy. But the longer-term guys will stay put, even though they, they
1: shouldn't. Um, Do you think there's any way Toronto, that they move on from Brody after this year?
3: From Brody?
1: I mean, it, it seems hasty, but this is the Mets we're talking yeah. about.
3: <laughs> well... It's the Mets we're talking about, but the one thing the Mets never seem to be is hasty with a front office decision. Mm, that's true. Sandy
1: Alderson um, was there forever. Yeah.
3: As long as the Wilpons are there, I think you can count on a GM not being fired until a year or two after they should be. <laughs> um, so, you know, you look at Toronto, that's a different story. They have been in aggressive sell mode mm-hmm. since before the season began. Um, I think they do get... Homes for both Stroman and Giles. Just knowing Mark Shapiro and the group there, I wouldn't be surprised if they end up packaging them. I don't think that's something that, for instance, the Giants are as likely to do with Smith and Bumgarner, but because there's an extra year of control with both Stroman and Giles, they could package them for just something enormous. And I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I think they some team could recognize a chance to affect two playoff races at two different levels of their pitching staff and just cash in the farm system to do it.
1: Yeah. I think that's a good idea. And I think Syndergaard too. I mean, this is two years after this. I mean, those two years are probably going to come at a cost of what, $50 million or so. Yeah. Well, Syndergaard is, he's
3: not as expensive as maybe again, he should be, or teams would think that he should be, because his numbers and his ability to stay healthy have not always matched up to the stuff. Which is another reason to trade him, because I think teams will look at it and say, I, "I heard someone mention a projected arbitration award for him for next year of 11 million-ish." Well, that's really not not bad. It's not like paying Jacob Degrom coming off his Cy Young season arbitration salary. Um, so, yeah, Syndergaard will be around for a couple years, but not at that enormous price just because he hasn't racked up the things that arbitration oh, yeah. allows you to inflate your salary. He's with. way
1: lower than I thought. For some reason I thought he was in the 15 million range was going to be like 22, 28 in the next two years. That's not nearly the case. So actually it's probably right. be closer to maybe 25, 30 million, which is easily, easily stomachable for pretty much any team. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's an easy decision if you have the pieces, but I, I don't know. I, I just I think that I think I agree with you too. The teams are going to see what Syndergaard has been and could be, and the Mets should see what he could be as far as you know. This is a guy who's missed some time with elbow scares and and that sort of thing. And you can mitigate some of that risk by trading him when his value is still perceived as high, and you know get out from that. And not not that you need to get out from Thor or you would even want to, but. You know, you've had Matt Harvey beforehand and you've seen how good he could be and how bad he could be. And this is a guy who was DFA'd in the last week. And if you would have told somebody that four years ago, they would have thought you were crazy.
0: Uh,
3: yeah. And I think it's telling that Brody, <laughs> it's such a screwed up situation. Yeah, it is. He was both Guards and Jacob DeGrom's agent before he became the GM. <laughs> well, he signed DeGrom to an extension. But there have been nothing but trade whispers with Syndergaard since he took over. I think that's pretty telling in its own right.
1: Yeah, the fact that he's got the inside track on knowing what it would take and still hasn't done it is uh, is certainly telling. I, let's talk a little bit of Cubs before we let you go. How does that sound? Sure. So, broad question, take it as you will. How did the Cubs get to this point? I mean, they were— a couple years ago, I mean, they had a ton of prospect depth, and I know they traded some of it off, you know, Jorge Soler for for um, Davis, Wade Davis, and, and that sort of thing. But how have they gotten to where they are now where they're cer- certainly still good, but they have some more flaws? Things have been uh, – they, they haven't progressed in a way that I think they maybe would have imagined two or three years ago. How have they gotten to this point?
3: Yeah, uh, they're the team I was alluding to when I mentioned – that the Giants aren't the only team who is currently a bit of a victim of their own success. When you have a an organization that succeeds as thrillingly as they did just a few years ago, um, and it's a young team that you know you have locked in for several years to come, there can come or sort of creep in a certain level of stagnation. Um, and It's not anyone's fault in particular. It's not that anyone is getting complacent, um, it's to sustain the level of innovation and the willingness to be nimble and to constantly be turning over the bottom of your roster, your front office, your coaching staff, the way that teams have needed to over the last half decade to keep up with the changes in baseball. And the Cubs haven't done it. Uh, You can just look at some of the basic things, the macro level trends that define the game right now. Things like launch angle on hard hit balls, percentage of sliders thrown as a you know as a percentage of all your pitches, the Cubs were once leaders in those areas and they're now laggards. In fact, they're dead last and by no small margin in terms of slider slider usage league wide. they they've been left behind. It's not because Theo Epstein isn't smart uh, anymore or willing to innovate but because they had a significant amount of brain drain, some people just getting hired to better roles in front offices where those roles were available uh, shortly after they won the World Series when those roles weren't available in the Cubs front office. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, They have held on to guys because, not just for emotional attachment reasons, but because those guys showed them what they're capable of in that 2015, 2016, 2017 arc. But some of those guys have now shown that they're unable to make the next step or they've even gone a step backward. Some of that reflects on the coaching, some of it on the front office, some of it on failures of analytics. But again, it all sort of traces back to it was 108 years in the making. You won this World Series. Things sort of got ossified after that. And it's natural, but it's very frustrating for fan base players coaches you know front office staff it's frustrating for everyone involved no one's trying to let it happen but it's just something that happened and they weren't able to prevent it the way they hoped they could
2: this is one this is Tom reads the, the stats question but um, they have 18 wins away so they're 18 and 28 the Marlins are 18 and 30 every other team has at least 20 wins um, on the road y- yeah, yeah on the road is there is there something specific or like why would a team um, especially one kind of you mentioned all these kind of core pieces have been together struggle so much you know away from home when when this team's had success in the past
3: you know there could be soft factors there that I'm not in a good position to analyze yeah the one firm thing that I can point to and that I think is true that I've even sort of and felt more strongly as this season has gone along just from observation is that you win on the road with your depth because the other team's going to have last ups because you've got to weather a few more rallies where the fans are getting loud and it's a little more stressful. Your pitching staff doesn't get quite as many breaks as they can uh, at home. You win with your depth on the road. And the Cubs just don't have that depth. In the past, they've been one of the deepest teams in the league. Top to bottom of the lineup, bench, five solid in the rotation, and a deep bullpen. None of that's really true this year. At any given time, anywhere from the bottom five to seven slots on their roster are practically dead. And as long as that's true, you're going to struggle on the road just because you're traveling. Guys are getting tired. It'd be nice to get someone a day off. You don't want to use relievers back-to-back as frequently. You may need a reliever to stretch out beyond an inning more often, and they don't have any pieces or the requisite number of pieces that suit those needs. They could turn all this around, and we could just end up saying, well, it was a fluke or it was something mental that they adjusted to, but that's my assessment of the struggles on the road for them so far.
1: I want to ask you what is probably a simple question, and you may even think it's a dumb question, but... Is the honeymoon with Joe Madden over?
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, I think the honeymoon ended, boy, trying to think, game six of the World Series. (laughs) Uh,
1: That's what I was afraid of. Which
3: sounds sounds silly, but when he created the crisis that would ensue the following night by overusing Araldis Chapman, when he simply didn't need to, um, and sort of making games six and seven far more stressful than they needed to be. Uh, fans sort of fell out of love with the Madden schtick at that moment. Now he has still guided them pretty soundly managed the personalities and managed the grind of the day to day over the last couple of years. But at the same time, you know, I talk about them not being able to keep up analytically at all times, maybe not, adapting to the developmental trends across the game, those have also been things that created friction between Madden and his front office. There are certain guys that they want to use in certain ways, or they want him to give a chance so that they can show what they can do so that they can develop the way that other teams are developing young players as they bring them into the league. And Madden either hasn't been receptive or just hasn't been successful in implementing those strategies. So, the honeymoon period's over with everyone. I think, including the players, to some extent, although they'll still line up behind him. Um, now it's a matter of are they going to be able to patch things together and build something more meaningful than that original honeymoon phase? But yeah, that that just overall good feeling, the Joe Madden peace and love thing, has been over for a while.
1: What's the latest you've heard with Ben about Ben Zobrist?
3: So we're actually right in the decision window, supposedly. This is something Theo Epstein talked about. End of last week, I believe, on a radio hit, he said there would obviously be a ramp-up period if Zobrist elects to return. For those who don't know, he's been gone for a couple of months now from the team uh, for family reasons. Um, And if he does want to come back, it will have to be after a buildup of some kind, probably at their complex in Arizona followed by some games in the minor leagues. So he's big league ready when he does show up again at this point, no way he's playing any of those games before probably September 1st, mm-hmm. um, uh, playing those big league games. I mean, um, but Epstein indicated that they need to know before the end of the month, either way, whether he even intends to make that, effort and whether they believe he can because after that they just wouldn't have time to get him built back up and make him a useful player down the stretch
0: if
1: he doesn't come back is he going to retire do you think
3: I think probably so um, it feels he's like it. 38 now um, the particular nature of this absence it's I say family related and we don't want to spend too much time speculating wildly or anything, but essentially he went through a divorce that seems to have been a painful one. Mm -hmm. Um, and certainly was unexpected based on what we knew of his family life. Right. Um, and that's very important to him. And I can draw just sort of an easy comparison to Ryan Sandberg, another fringe level, fringe hall of fame level Cubs second baseman who retired in 1994. 1994 retired mid season because of a messy divorce. (laughs) And uh, he ended up coming back two years later, but he was never the same player. And when he retired, he was 33, maybe 34. Zobris, his body's been through a bit more. He's already checked so many things off the list that I think he doesn't have quite as much to come back for Mm -hmm. as Sandberg did. It just feels like if we don't see him again before the end of this year,
2: That's probably the end of things. Ryan Sandberg, 34 and 94. Okay.
1: Well, before we let you go, let's ask you about the Cubs deadline and what you expect. Um, Does a guy like Nicholas Castellanos make sense to you? I know he's been rumored. I mean, what kind of positions are they looking for that you think actually makes sense for where they're at?
3: It's pretty clear at this point that they do want to add something, whether it's Castellanos or someone else a bat that lengthens the lineup maybe not in an everyday way you know castellanos is a guy they might get off the field against certain right handers he's not a great fielder as people who watch the al central know pretty well (laughs) yep uh no matter where you put him he's not helpful on defense Uh, he can mash lefties he hits righties well enough that they can pencil him in there if they feel like the matchup's good that's it feels like right now that's the level they're shopping at. Um, They're also looking at left-handed and right-handed relievers. Lefties have been obviously at the top of their shopping list for a while now, Uh, but now with Pedro Stropes scuffling really badly over the last few weeks and for most of the season, if we're being fair, um, they may need to look at adding a right-handed piece to the bullpen too. This is where I talk about their depth just really failing them and where you can see how it's harder to imagine a trade deadline just fixing that because you're not talking about one addition. You're talking about two or three, hopefully. Um, And they've already made one in Martin Maldonado, but he just doesn't move the needle that much. I think Castellanos is a decent fit. I think any number of relievers could be a decent fit. But I also think this team maybe reaching the reckoning point that they briefly looked like they might avoid leading into the all-star break deal. team was talking about, if we don't start playing better, we're going to have to make some hard decisions. This core that we've ridden with for so long, we're going to have to shake things up a bit because we have the future to look at too. And this team is just playing mediocre baseball. Well, then they got hot for about a week and a half and everyone sort of forgot that as a possibility I don't think you'll see the Cubs act as sellers, but I, if I were in that seat, what I would be looking for are creative ways to, without significantly damaging this year's team, improve next year's team from the top of the roster down. Let me talk to the Mets about a guy like Conforto. Talk to the Rangers about Joey Gallo and see just how crazy you have to get to make something like that happen. Mm-hmm somebody who really beefs up your lineup rounds out your roster and not just for this season but into the future and then you can start adding again at the edges over the winter
2: so i was going to ask real quickly pull the room here cubs cardinals brewers where do they finish up at the end of the year i would go cubs brewers cardinals in that order um,
1: justin how about you he's got to get plugged
2: in here brewers baby <laughs> Justin, I, you got to rank the other two teams. Like, what the what the hell is that answer?
4: Yeah, I think um, uh, we'll go. I think the Cubs, honestly, probably inch, the inch out the Brewers. Um, I the Brewers have not looked great as of late. Um, but we we'll, need to
1: trade for Jonathan Scope. Yeah, everything will be fine.
4: We'll uh, we'll go Cubs, Brewers, in the wild card, and then uh, St. Louis down in third. How about place. you, Matt?
3: I think the Cubs have the lowest floor and the highest ceiling, mm-hmm. the Cardinals, the highest floor and the lowest ceiling. <laughs> um, I think if you'd asked me even just a few days ago, I'd have said Brewers, Cubs, Cardinals. Hmm. Now, because the Brewers have lost Brandon Woodruff, um, nice. and it just doesn't seem like that bullpen's going to come together the way they've hoped. I'm going to say Cubs, yep. Brewers, Cardinals, but it's going to be breathtakingly close as, as it is right now.
1: Okay. So one of the, the last thing I want to ask you, I mean, are, are the Cubs in a weird spot? They, what, what do they have in terms of immediate help at Iowa? I know they brought up, um, I can't think of his name. He's been playing. Uh, he's been hitting. Why can't I remember his name?
3: Robel Garcia.
1: Yeah. That's probably why I can't remember his name. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, obviously in, in recent years, they've traded prospects and, and they've thinned the system out. Are they in a spot where they maybe don't have a ton of help at Iowa and some of their prospects are a little further away and maybe aren't as highly valued in the marketplace or am I reading that wrong?
3: You know, they have what they need to get whatever they need. Most teams do. And I think we sometimes just because there are any number of players who because of their circumstance and the team's circumstance won't be traded we kind of think of them as non-assets and we start going well this team doesn't have enough to acquire that player Mm -hmm. it's rarely true and it's not true in the cubs case they've got a first round pick from last year named nico horner who has a lot of trade value and they could put put him at the center of any number of deals they've got ian happ who has been just hanging out in iowa all year because He had a crisis late last season that lasted into spring training.
1: Talk about a bad beat hanging out in Iowa all summer. No, thanks. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
3: He certainly has viewed it that way too. Um, (laughs) But he's hitting really well over the last month or so. And there's a lot about Ian Hap that will intrigue other teams. For sure. They have pitching further down the system. That's pretty impressive. They don't have a lot of instant help that they can call up from Iowa. It would have to be half or some of their very high um, high volatility relievers, guys like Dylan Maples, who might strike out the side or walk in three runs on any given night. Um, so if they're going to get help, it has to come from outside. They can get pretty much whatever help they need if they really want to go that bowl. But I'm not sure that they have enough faith in this roster this season that they're going to want to just supplement and drain their farm system it would have they'd have to really feel like they're in a position to put the pedal down not just win the division but be serious world series contenders and you know that that player would be controlled beyond this year so that it doesn't hurt as much to give up a significant portion of the farm
1: yeah it sounds it sounds to me like a similar tack that the twins will take where they don't want to go all in on this season obviously the twins for different reasons (laughs) than the cubs but If they want to give up something of consequence from the minors, they want it to be with multiple shots at the division, at the pennant, at the World Series. So that's why I think Marcus Stroman makes more sense than Madison Bumgarner, for instance, for the Twins, and probably why you would view certain trade candidates for the Cubs through the same lens. Is that pretty close?
3: Yeah. I mean, every team, every team's fans, all of us as just baseball media types, we prefer to see players move to have extra years of control attached because it just makes the deal more interesting. It raises the stakes, right? Yeah. Um, But in the particular cases of the Cubs, because of the strange structure of their roster and the twins, because they're still just sort of at the opening of their competitive window. I think both of those teams, if they make a big addition will want to do it for someone who doesn't just supplement this particular year.
1: I also think it's a good thing that Bumgarner isn't signed after this year because I'd be terrified about taking on more years with big money because he could go Justin Verlander and completely reinvent himself or he could go Felix Hernandez and just, um, you know, wither into nothing. And, I mean, I don't know that there's a predictor for that. Maybe you do as far as uh, what made Verlander different than a Lincecum or a Hernandez, but I don't want to be the team that has to give Bumgarner a four- or five-year deal this offseason. And I don't necessarily want to be a team that has control of him beyond this season. Is that a weird way to say it?
3: No, I think it's perfectly put. Um, I also think, you know, one easy thing that you can tell was separating Verlander from Hernandez, especially, is that Hernandez just started losing his sheer stuff, the velocity. Mm-hmm. Verlander really didn't. You know, he's not touching a hundred as often, but He never got below, you know, averaging 94, 95 on the fastball. It's not true of Bumgarner. Um, He falls more into the Hernandez bucket in that sense. So I don't think you'll see a team make a big four. I don't even want to think about five. I don't think a team will even go as far as four years for him in free agency. And you're right that a lot of teams will be viewing him almost as more valuable as a short term guy with a playoff track record than they would as someone that they would have to be adding to their rotation with big dollars attached for a few more years.
1: So there could be some Jake Arietta to his free agency.
3: Yeah, that's a really good comp, especially personality-wise and the fact that, <laughs> uh, like Arietta, Baumgartner's not just going to take, well, okay, if you guys say this is what I'm worth, that's, <laughs> that's not really how either guy works.
1: He just... Takes off on his dirt bike, never to be seen again. But uh, <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for your time. Uh, maybe we'll get you after the deadline for some analysis, some hashtag analysis. Otherwise, hopefully, we'll see you out at Target Field real soon. But uh, follow him on Twitter at m a true blood. Make sure you subscribe to Penning Bull or Baseball Prospectus, or why not both? Check out his work again. Thank you so much for your time.
3: Sounds great. Thanks, guys.
1: All right, guys. Thank you so much for this week's episode. For we got uh, Tom Schreier across the table. We've got Justin Bailey doing the production. This is Brandon Warren saying thank you for checking us out. Tune in next time for an all-new edition of Midwest Swing, part of the Zone Coverage Podcast Network. Rock over London. Rock on, Chicago.